Hey, this is Nicole Kelly, host of Loud and Proud. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. This is Emily, host of Beauties and Headcanons here on Public House Media. Thanks for listening to the following broadcast on Public House Media. Once you're done with this episode, I hope you'll come and check out my show, Beauties and Headcanons, where we talk about nerdy theories, games, TV shows, books, movies, you name it. We're here to talk nerdy to you. A new show comes out every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode of Beauties and Headcanons. Thanks again for checking out the following broadcast on Public House Media. The latest headlines. If they go out and wipe the floor with the Texans, I might buy in. The insightful interviews. Whitney McIntosh, SB Nation. I was more impressed with John Carlo. Definitely consider Aaron Judge's all-star squad. The hottest takes. Yeah, Saquon Barkley had a great game against Iowa, but he hasn't done much. Can all be found on Press, Press Row. Row. Here's your host. It's clearly time for a change. It's only a matter of time before it happens. Christian Heimel. Hello, everybody. Welcome again on Press Row. Christian Imel here with you, broadcasting as part of the Public House Media Network. Thank you so much once again for taking time out of your day and joining us here on one of the fastest-growing sports podcasts in North America. We certainly do appreciate it. we got a great show for you guys in store today. Michael Scotto of The Athletic. He will join us and talk NBA as the season gets back underway after the All-Star break here tonight. We'll talk a little bit about the All-Star format. We'll also talk about the teams currently leading their respective conferences and if they actually have a chance to make it further into the playoffs, potentially win an NBA championship. Some trades going on in Major League Baseball, some big free agent signings. Obviously, Eric Hosmer, a huge deal in San Diego. J.D. Martinez and the Red Sox finally figuring life out. What those deals mean for their new teams. We'll also discuss the pace of play initiative that, if you didn't see it, it came out earlier this week. Uh, Some new rules to mound visits. How will that actually affect the game? We'll also get to your guys' questions uh, as well as we always do each and every single week. You guys can be part of the show by finding us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at PressRowPHM. Check out the Facebook page, PressRowPodcast-PublicHouseMedia. And you can also email the show as always, PressRowPHM at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter, at Chris Heimel, H-E-I-M-A-L-L. Wanna, uh, as always, you can also subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends. It's how we become one of the fastest-growing uh, sports podcasts in the country. And that is, of course, by you guys going to Apple, uh, iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, iHeartRadio, or ThePHMedia.com, and subscribing, uh, checking us out, sharing us with your friends, telling people about us. Word of mouth, you guys are the best marketing tool we could possibly have. So if we aren't doing something right, let us know. If we are, share us with your friends and let everybody know about us. But I want to start with something that kind of got brushed under the uh, the rug a little bit this past weekend. Uh, it, it was, and some people aren't as excited about it, but we talked about it a little bit last week, and that was the Daytona 500 uh, this past Sunday. Austin Dillon taking the number three car back to victory lane in Daytona. It was a lot of fun. It was a tremendous uh tremendous race if you if you watch it if you're a fan of nascar like i am i want you guys to understand just how great sunday was and what it meant to so many people just think about what austin Dillon did driving the number three made famous by of course the late dale earnhardt senior the win came 17 years to the day after dale earnhardt passed away on that very track it came 20 years uh after dale earnhardt senior won his Daytona 500 in 1998. Austin Dillon, the grandson of Richard Childress, who owned not only that number three car now, but the number three when Dale Sr. drove it. So there are certain things you just can't script, and and that was one of them. What happened on Sunday was so cool and so emotional for so many people to look at, and and it's great for racing because over the last couple of years, no Tony Tony Stewart has retired. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. has retired. Jeff Gordon has retired. The The sport has lost some of its biggest names. Obviously, you still got guys like Kurt and Kyle Busch. Jimmy Johnson, arguably with the greatest driver uh, of this generation, the greatest driver of this generation, maybe of all time. Uh, Brad Keselowski is still there. Joey Logano is still there. Those are some of the big names. But other than that, 
there haven't really been many great uh, names out there for a lot of people. And you saw right at the top uh, the ability of some of these these young guys and young kids making their name right at the first race of the year, which was awesome uh, to see. You've got, obviously, Austin Dillon, who won it, Eric Amarola, who we'll get to in a little bit, Bubba Wallace, uh, who finished second, was awesome to see that. Uh, a number of other guys there who were just doing as best as they possibly could. Ryan Blaney was involved in that all the way through. Alex Bowman won the pole uh, in the 88 car. Denny Hamlin was there. Uh, Paul Menard, Ryan Newman, all those guys. that, If you're a racing fan, you know them, but some of you may not. Uh, so it was great to see those performances. And I know a lot of people who were upset at Austin Dillon saying that he, he wrecked uh, Eric Amarola, but you know what, on that final lap, you know, when you watch it, he really didn't. Uh, Amarola tried to come down and block and Dillon just did what he's supposed to do. He got his nose in there and he tried to find a way past Amarola ended up spinning out, finishing 11th. Even Amarola said there was no issue. He was completely fine with it. He was totally okay with everything. Um, but, you know, it, it's there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I can't blame him for it. He's racing hard. Uh, and Dylan said he was doing what had to be done uh, to win Daytona. Eric Amarola was completely fine with it. He actually tweeted out uh, about it uh, as well. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you can't be upset about that. It's a great race. It was a lot of fun to see. And I was so happy for it. A couple of other notes from Daytona, Danica Patrick crashing, uh, ending her NASCAR career. Um, she said this was going to be her final race, ended up finishing 35th because of that crash on lap 102, just about halfway through the race that also knocked out guys like Kevin Harvick, Casey Kane, and Brad Keselowski. So, um, unfortunate for her, uh, her racing career is over, um, or her NASCAR career is over. She will end her racing career later this summer, uh, in May when she drives in the Indy 500 for the final time. So, um, say what you want about Danica. Listen, uh, what she did for the sport, what she did for, for young girls who want to be a racer, that is commendable. She may not have done what people expected her to do. She may not have been the best racer. She may not have been what everybody hoped she would be, what even she wanted to be. But at the same time, you cannot uh, fault her for at least giving it a shot. She's a tremendously talented racer. She's a solid person by all accounts. And when you look at what she did uh, for the sport of racing, not just NASCAR, but the most successful woman in the history of American open wheel racing, uh, won the uh, Indy Japan 300 in 2008, the only female win uh, ever in the IndyCar series, which is tremendous for her. You look at some of the positions that she's done uh, over her career. She finished uh, with seven top tens in her NASCAR career. Um, and just impressive to see, you know, seven podiums, uh, in, in IndyCar, um, won the pole three times in IndyCar, won the pole once in NASCAR. So, um, for Danica, for her career, by all accounts, a tip of the cap to her and, and very, very impressed, very happy to see that, uh, with Danica and, and her career, uh, in NASCAR. So say what you will about her, but, uh, I take, I take my hat off to her. And again, a big congrats to Austin Dillon. And that number three car for me as a Dale fan to see that number three back in victory lane was uh, uh, tremendously emotional this past Sunday. And I hope you guys all enjoyed it. If you watch it, if you're not a NASCAR fan, uh, I completely understand. And we'll we'll transition and talk about some more stuff that everybody wants to talk about. And that is, of course, uh, college basketball. What's been a crazy year. We're going to touch on a couple of things a little bit later on in the show. But uh, it, it's it's impressive to see still some of the games that are going on. You look at Purdue and a tough loss for them, and then they go and have a, a, a really difficult win against Penn State. They come away with that victory, which is huge for them. Um, Ohio State has struggled this year. We talk about it a lot. If it's parity or if it's poor play, I personally think it's parity. I think it's great. Um, the most recent polls that came out, Virginia gets a little bit better with 42 first-place votes. Michigan State stays at number two. Villanova back up to number three. They've rebounded nicely after those uh, tough games. Xavier uh, falling to number four and falling behind Villanova because 
the Wildcats able to come up with a huge victory at Xavier. I mean, that was a big win for them. 16 points on the road. They sweep the season series uh, for them. And now it looks as though they are poised. Should they win the Big East tournament again, they are poised for a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. The other thing that you look at here, Duke has played very well uh, without Marvin Bagley, winning a few games in a row without arguably their best player, arguably uh, a first-round draft pick, a lottery pick by all accounts. Uh, so good to see the Blue Bloods starting to come back. They're, they're starting to make their names known here once again as, again, Michigan State up there, Villanova becoming a Blue Blood. They're turning around. Duke has played a lot better over the last couple of weeks. Kansas even has played so much better. We thought Kansas was going to be out of it in the Big 12, but they are right there now leading Texas Tech by just half a game. Uh, Obviously, with the loss to Texas Tech earlier in the year, uh, they've got a big game coming up this Saturday at Texas Tech. And this is what I've talked about multiple times. When you beat a team early in conference season on the road, can you mentally lock in the next time you face them at home. And Texas Tech is going to have to do that because if they do, they're going to have that number one seed in the Big 12 tournament. They're going to have that regular season crown, that automatic bid to the NIT if they don't win, but you know they're going to be a tournament team. So another win over Kansas for Texas Tech on Saturday would be absolutely huge, monumental for them. And uh, it's going to be one of the biggest keys here coming up is if they're able to actually go ahead and do it. Kansas, though, with a massive win over Oklahoma, which really kind of helps solidify the fact that they are still who we think they are. They are still Kansas. It is still a Bill Self team, and you've got to be impressed with how they've played so far. I mean, uh, they're not scoring a lot, but they distribute the ball better than a lot of teams. 14th in the country, just over 17 assists per game. You cannot be upset about that. Bill Self has done a tremendous job. Uh, Svi Mayakalik, uh, excuse me, Svi Mikailuik is a tremendous shooter. He's a lot of fun to watch. Devontae Graham, I love. They've got five guys averaging double figures uh, scoring. Um, Malik Newman is a tremendously talented kid. 12.5 points, five rebounds a game, a couple of assists per game as well. Uh, and then you look at Yudoka Azubuki, who uh, Azubuki might be the best post player there is right now. A sophomore out of Nigeria, 7 feet tall, 14.7 rebounds, but the kid is also a stout defender, a little less than two blocks a game, plays very well down low. He's going to be a lot of fun to watch, and it's one of the things that makes Kansas so talented is that they have that ability to play defense. It's what's going to make them dangerous in the tournament, and this is what we talk about when we talk about the Blue Bloods and can they actually... Uh, come back and and reestablish their dominance in the world of college basketball. Um, when it comes down to it, it's a mentality thing. Uh, you look at what this as we preview Kansas and Texas Tech coming up uh, here on Press Row uh, Saturday. It's going to be big Texas Tech with the win already over KU at Fog Allen earlier this year. The Jayhawks have since rebounded very nicely, of course, with that big victory over Oklahoma. Texas Tech coming off a tough loss at Baylor, so they need to get back in the right mindset. But the thing about Texas Tech is they defend very well. Eight steals a game, uh, four and a half blocks a game. They rebound very well. Um, The problem, and they play great defense, again, holding opponents to about 62 points a game. Kansas, though, is a team that scores 82 points. So it's it's about defense. It's about if Texas Tech can mentally lock in here uh, on Saturday at home. They've got that advantage. Can they find a way to just say, you know what, this is going to be us. This is going to be our opportunity here. We're going to be the ones to take control of the Big 12. Keenan Evans, Zaire Smith, Jarrett Culver, those are going to have to be the guys, obviously, that get things done. They're going to be the ones that are keyed in on, but Evans is a senior. Um, you look at some uh, Culver, a, a freshman who might be the, uh, if it wasn't for Trey Young, he, he'd probably be uh, a candidate for, for freshman of the year. So, um it, it's all about those that senior leadership, and if Keenan Evans can provide that, and if his coach can give that to him as well, and allow him uh, and allow them to do some of the best things they could possibly do, uh, some of the better best seasons they've ever had. So uh, Saturday's game is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really kind of pumped to see it. 
Uh, and if Keenan Evans is able to get back um, from that foot injury that he suffered against Baylor, it, it's, it's going to be even more interesting to see. So can Texas Tech actually uh, come back through and figure it out? Um, but we'll see exactly what happens come Saturday. If Keenan Evans can't play, it looks as though um, you know Kansas is going to roll back to another Big 12 championship. But uh, it, that's, that's a tough loss for them to take, obviously. And if they can mentally bounce back, it just proves just how talented Chris Beard is um, as a head coach there uh, when it comes time for one of the biggest matchups of the weekend and that of course being uh, Kansas at Texas Tech coming up here on Saturday. Still plenty more to talk about in uh, the world of sports. We'll get to your questions as well but when we return Michael Scotto of The Athletic he'll talk NBA with us back in action seven games tonight uh, on TV as as some of the top teams in the league get back to action after the All-Star break. You're on Press Row. Listen to every episode and get the latest show sent right to you. Subscribe to Press Row on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com, and Stitcher.com. Or visit us online at www.thephmedia.com. This is Press Row with Christian Heimel, a public house media podcast. Welcome back on Press Row. Christian Imel here with you, broadcasting as part of the Public House Media Network. NBA All-Star break is over as teams get back tonight. Seven games in action later on tonight. Uh, the two biggest ones being Washington at Cleveland, Clippers at Golden State. And uh, with the All-Star game now done, we hit the home stretch here for the NBA season. And welcome in good friend of the show, Michael Scotto, now of The Athletic. So we congratulate Michael on his transition there. And uh, welcome him back. Mike, thanks a lot for the time. Thanks, Christian. I appreciate that. Great to be back on with you. Well, Mike, let's start with this past weekend in L.A., the All-Star Weekend. Uh, your thoughts on, on the new format for the All-Star game that we saw, kind of that playground mentality, picking teams between LeBron and Steph Curry? I think that, uh, like you said, it's definitely uh, more playground style in terms of picking the guys. But the biggest thing was you saw a little bit more of competitive juices out there from both sides, which was something I think that was lacking you know at times they would kind of clear the court and make it a, a dunk layup line for both sides and and we saw it kind of go down the wire for the first time in a while so I thought that was uh, a step in the right direction uh, you know in terms of the all-star game you know if you ever really want to make it a super competitive game you could kind of do it like baseball where you battle for home home court advantage in this case as opposed to home field advantage as it is in baseball but I think it's a good step in the right direction for you know, building up the competitiveness of the game. And I think, uh, you know, for the first try, it turned out relatively well, all things considered. As All-Star Weekend moves forward, are there any changes that you'd like to see? Is there anything maybe you'd like to see done a little bit differently come All-Star Weekend? You know, I think what could be interesting is, you know, there have been some rumblings over the years about maybe adding a four-point line. Uh, to the league. Now, I'm, I'm not saying anything's close, but it's at least been kicked around slightly. So if you have any thoughts of doing that, maybe, and making it part of the game long-term, trying that out. I think that'd be a good experimental way to do it. Um, if that's a route that Adam Silver really is considering down the road. Um, but other than that, I, I will say that I do miss a little bit of the trade buzz uh, being around All Star Weekend, especially as a reporter, I mean it was, it was basically uh, you know what the Star Wars convention is to movie people. You know the the trade deadline and All Star Weekend were intertwined similarly in that regard, and um, it just added a lot of extra buzz. I felt sure it took away from the events a little bit, uh, especially with trade talks. You know previously um, over the years, such as the Marcus Cousins. You know, the way he found out kind of at the All-Star uh, weekend about getting traded. Um, I, I can understand why the league moved it up 
Plus, you know, for teams, you get a guy for a little bit longer if you're going to make a move to really make an impact in a playoff run and, and seeding purposes. But from a reporter perspective, I do miss the trade deadline buzz during All-Star Weekend. He's Michael Scotto of The Athletic joining us here on Press Row. You mentioned the trade deadline. We'll talk about some of that stuff in just a little bit. But Commissioner Adam Silver making some headlines uh, saying that there's a possibility and nothing fruition just yet, but there's a possibility of playoff seeding going 1 through 16 in the future where you could have teams from the same conference playing in the NBA Finals. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard that from Commissioner Silver? Well, the, the biggest obstacle, I think, uh, that first came to mind when you know he brought it up was uh, the scheduling. And, and how are you going to have all these 30 teams kind of match up and have an even schedule on a playing field in a sense where they're all competing against each other? Um, you know, I think that's something that they would have to work through. And, you know, it, look, I get it. It's certainly an interesting debate, especially when you look at, um, you know, the West relatively has been better than the East for a number of years now, you know, top to bottom. And uh, I, I think that certainly even the, the caliber of the players in each conference has kind of shifted that way. Um, you know, if theoretically LeBron James went to Los Angeles, that'd be a huge blow to the Eastern Conference's talent pool, uh, obviously considering he's the best player in the league in my opinion, but in general, it just seems like, you know, Boston got Gordon Hayward, which was a a migrating of sorts of talent from west to the east, but you don't always see that that often. It, it seems like the west has uh, better players overall. Um, you know, I guess the, the other comparison, I, you would know this, you know, as, as a guy who's played in fantasy football leagues, you know, sometimes you play against the other division, and the other division isn't as good as yours, and you're saying to yourself, well, you know, this guy got first place in their division and getting a, and is getting a bye, and they'd be like the fourth seed in our division. It's, it's, it's somewhat similar in that regard, although Toronto and Boston have played well, you know, to start for the East. But I just think, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest thing is going to be the scheduling and trying to get everybody to play relatively an even number of games against each other. And I think you lose a little bit of if you went that route and you scheduled it that way, you, you would lose a little bit of the rivalry aspect. Oh, Mike, we'll just focus on what we know the playoff format is to be, and that is conference by conference. Uh, speaking of that, in the East, Toronto, uh, with a nice surge there prior to the break, winning seven in a row, what has Dwayne Casey's squad done maybe better than they have the last couple of years that has them leading the East right now? Yeah, I think their bench is better um, than it has been over the years. I think Gianna Nubi has been a nice... Uh, rookie for them coming in this season. Uh, Jakob Podol has developed. And I, I just think that when it comes to Toronto, we've seen them have nice regular seasons. The question with them has always come the playoffs and which DeMar DeRozan and which Kyle Lowry are you going to get uh, when the lights shine bright. They've had inconsistent series and inconsistent performances over the years. And ultimately, they're going to determine how well Toronto fares going forward. And if they're really going to compete with Cleveland and Boston for the Eastern Conference crown. You mentioned Cleveland there, and, and they made a lot of moves at the trade deadline. Kind of a two-part question here. Uh, number one, did the New Look Cavs have enough to, to win the Eastern Conference again, get back to the finals? And then number two, probably most importantly, did the Cavaliers and Kobe Altman do enough to keep LeBron James when he enters free agency this summer? Well, I think there's no question that Cleveland on paper, um, and, and you know what, not even just in terms of paper, the chemistry aspect, they improved with this trade. They got younger, fresher legs, um, and, and they're going to need that if they're going to have a deep playoff run. Uh, these are young guys that are, you know, sort of a, an energizer bunny, multiple en- energizer bunnies, if you will, for this team. And, you know, they're they're looking forward to their first type of playoff experience, guys like Larry Nance, Jordan Clarkson. Uh, Rodney Hood has, you know, been there, but – still a, a useful guy who can do a, a number of different things and you know the, the biggest thing I look at with this team when I first saw the trade uh, the multiple trades I said to myself if worse comes to worse and LeBron James does leave you have young guys that are under your control for the foreseeable future that can still keep you competitive and I think that that is an underlying aspect that not a lot of people are uh, mentioning. Yeah, I definitely think it helps uh, their 
chances of keeping LeBron James. You know, ultimately it's going to depend how well they do in the playoffs, but it helps in that regard. But you also cover yourself in case, you know, the best player in the game decides to leave and you have to rebuild and you kind of short-stopped that rebuilding process um, by getting some younger, talented players in these deals. Talking basketball here with Michael Scotto of The Athletic on Press Row as the NBA season gets back in action tonight after the All-Star break. Out West, Mike, uh, the Houston Rockets, winners of 10 in a row prior to the break, leading the Western Conference over the Golden State Warriors. Have the Rockets figured it out? Do they have enough juice to to win the West and, and at least finish as that number one seed going into the playoffs? I think Houston has better than a puncher's chance against Golden State. And the reason I say that, you know, I know a lot of people talk about Chris Paul and his acquisition. Certainly the, the statistics are there when you have Clint Capella, uh, James Harden, and Chris Paul on the floor. That trio has been uh, nearly unbeatable together when healthy. Uh, but for me, when I looked at the Rockets, the, the moves that I thought really elevated them into true championship contenders was it the guys that they brought in that play defense? You know, P.J. Tucker and Luke Richard Mute, guys that can play out on the perimeter and as well as guard on the low block. Um, you need guys like that when you're going up against the Warriors and, and guys like Draymond Green and, and Kevin Durant and guys who can score in a multitude of ways. You have defenders now that can uh, at least make it – you're going to have a tough time slowing down Golden State, but you – or shutting them down, rather. But at least with uh, Umba Mute and P.J. Tucker, these are guys that have proven to be defenders at high levels that can slow down some of the best opposing scorers in the league at a multitude of positions. So, uh, to me, that's what stood out, and that's what has changed in Houston that's elevated them to being slightly above Golden State uh, right now, as, as you know, we uh we speak but that's the biggest thing Houston's always had the offense the defense now is coming together and and you know sort of rivaling their offensive explosiveness that's the difference well with them and Golden State it really is kind of just a two-horse race uh there out west is there another team you see that even has a shot at, at possibly challenging for a western conference championship and heading into the NBA finals no I'm just being honest, I think San Antonio's dealt with a ton of injuries over the year. Um, sure, they have a puncher's chance and have an excellent coach in Greg Popovich, but I think, you know, Kawhi Leonard is the X factor there, and it's been a tough year for him so far. Minnesota, I love their youth. I think they have a bright future. I just don't think right now is their time. Oklahoma City, when you look at the Thunder, they have the best puncher's chance, in my opinion, of making noise, but... Um, they've been inconsistent and, you know, before DeMarcus Cousins went out for the Pelicans, I really thought that they were the most, uh, somewhat of a dark horse team in the sense that they're the only team in the league that was playing two traditional type of big men who can play in the new age game and run the floor, pass, shoot, and own the glass. So I thought that that would have given Golden State at least some trouble and made things at least interesting. But with the way things stand now, I think it's Houston and Golden State battling it out for the West. And when I look at the East, you know, you can say Toronto, Boston, or Cleveland. You know, Washington has that that slight puncher's chance because they've had a better record against teams above 500, and it seems like they rise against their competition, which is always a good thing. But ultimately, it's Cleveland's uh, conference to lose in the East, and for my money, I, I know that the first matchup after the trade didn't bode well for the Boston Celtics, um, you know, when Paul Pierce was getting his jersey retired. But I still think overall I would I would say Boston um, could give Cleveland a better run for its money than Toronto if they faced off in the uh, Eastern Conference Finals or what have you, just because uh, I, I trust Brad Stevens more. I think Kyrie Irving in the clutch, he can't dispute and, um, you know, sometimes youthfulness is – ignorance is bliss. And I think that Boston has a lot of younger guys who don't know how big the playoffs can be in those moments. And sometimes that's a good thing. You don't overthink it and you just play ball. Look at a guy like Jason Tatum, you know, Jalen Brown, et cetera, is still young. Um, and you need fresh legs come playoff time. So in my mind, I, even though Toronto has the best record, you know, as of this conversation, I think, it, it would come down to Boston and Cleveland in the East. 
I know you're a busy man, especially with that transition to the athletic. Congrats once again. Thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate it, bud. You got it, Christian. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, that's Michael Scotto of The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter as well. Check out all of his great work covering the Knicks, the Nets, uh, mainly in New York, and then also the NBA as a whole. Really appreciate his time here this week. And listen, whether you like the All-Star format or not, it's something to get the people talking a little bit. I think it's been talked about at nauseum that they should have done the, the player draft live uh, on TV, televised it, or done something maybe uh, on social media. But um, either way, it was a new thing. It was fun for people to see if, um, you know, if, if you watched it, you probably enjoyed it. Definitely add a little bit more, uh, competitive fire to it. Um, I do like the new format. I think it'd be fun to actually do it legitimately like a playground style where you have all the guys just standing there and you have LeBron and Steph pick teams right before they go and play. Uh, that could be a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, otherwise, you know, as we head back into to actual competition here, Tonight, uh, it really is going to be a question of do the Rockets have enough to hold off Golden State and do the Cavaliers have enough to come back and, and get back to the finals? Because as we've talked about at nauseum, that really is the big storyline. Is, is it still the, and you heard Mike say it, he thinks it's still the Cavaliers' conference to lose. But uh, I'll be honest, I don't really know. The Celtics aren't playing that great. I think the trade deadline or the all-star break, excuse me, came at the worst possible time. For this Cleveland squad, they were playing so well. They have won four in a row. Uh, they won three in a row after the trade. They had some good chemistry, some good flow going, and then they take a week-long break. Who knows if that chemistry is still there? Who knows if that uh, fire is still there from these guys? But right now, Cleveland playing very well. I don't know if Toronto has enough juice. Defensively, they're a very good team. Um, they're great in conference, 25-7, and 17-12 and 12 on the road, which is huge. Second-best road record in the East, only to Boston at 19-8. and eight. And if the Celtics figure it out, who knows? But uh, it's going to be an interesting, fun three-team race there in the East. And out West, it's not even close. Uh, you know, Houston and Golden State, both about 10 games up on San Antonio and Minnesota. So the question becomes is if Houston can kind of keep it together long enough to beat the Warriors in the playoffs. And uh, I think they do. I think Clint Capella, I think the defense that they play uh, is very, very good. Uh, it certainly helps when you have two incredible ball handlers and shooters like Chris Paul and James Harden there in Houston. And Mike D'Antoni, who knows, maybe this is a team that finally gets him over the hump as a coach as well. Well, halfway through the show here, we've talked some NBA, we've talked some NASCAR and some college basketball as well. But when we come back, we'll dive right back onto the diamond and get a little baseball action. Eric Hosmer, J.D. Martinez signing big contracts uh, here over this past week. What does it mean for their new teams? And Will these pace of play initiatives that were announced earlier in the week, will they actually mean anything to the game that you see on the field? Coming up on Press Row. Want to be part of the show? Go to Facebook and search Press Row Podcast Public House Media. Or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Press Row PHM. You can also email the program Press Row PHM at gmail.com. This is Press Row with Christian Heimel, a public house media podcast. On Press Row, still plenty to talk about here uh, in the world of sports, whether it be baseball or the Olympics. We're going to get to that in just a little bit because some really exciting stuff happening over there in Pyeongchang. I'm Christian Heimler. You're listening to Press Row, part of the Public House Media Network. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends, Apple iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, and of course, thephmedia.com as well. You can also get in touch with the show on social media. Twitter and Instagram is Press Row PHM. You can find us on Facebook, Press Row Podcast dash Public House Media. Or you can always email the show, Press Row PHM at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter as well at Chris Heimel, H E I M A L L. Want to talk baseball though, first, real quick. We had some huge free agent signings over this past week. Uh, Eric Hosmer getting eight years, $144 million for the San Diego Padres. It's the largest. Uh, contract in San Diego Padres history. Uh, and when you look at it, you can't really be surprised uh, that it would be Eric Hosmer uh, as that guy. Haas has been tremendous throughout his entire career. Uh, he's going to go and play first base now. 
for that squad, moving Will Myers out to right field, um, which was probably best for this team. You look at what he did last year, 25 home runs, 94 RBI, hit 318 for that team, plays a great first base, um, a, a World Series champion there with the Kansas City Royals, uh, former third overall pick, a tremendous talent. Um, he has been great throughout his career, batting 284. Uh, you can't be upset. It's really interesting, though, to see that it be San Diego to make that. It's a huge splash for them uh, to go out there and be the team that breaks the bank for a guy in Eric Hosmer, arguably the best free agent available um, there, especially at for easily the best first baseman available uh, at that time in free agency. One of the better defensive ones, not the best defensive first baseman for sure, and, and, and maybe not even um, you know top five defensively. But when you look at you know uh, Joey Votto, you look at um, Eric Hosmer and a couple of these other guys, the best first baseman, uh, and it's impressive to see where he ranks on those lists. Anthony Rizzo uh, is up there. Joey Votto, obviously, as I mentioned, Rizzo of the Cubs. You look at where Hosmer ranks, there was a, a, a piece on MLB.com a couple of days ago that had, um, I believe, Eric Hosmer up there in the top five, top ten. But, I mean, you look at Rizzo, you look at Edward Encarnacion, Jose Abreu. Um, I, I think Hosmer is one of those guys that can be so impressive just based off what he's done in the past. But it's impressive more than anything to see San Diego go and make this splash. And they've done this a little bit over the last couple of years when they traded for Will Myers, when they went out and now and got Chase Headley and uh, Freddie Galvis in those trades. Now they get Eric Hosmer, and it's going to be interesting to see because they still have a lot of question marks. They're not that big market team. You remember them for having Adrian Gonzalez before he became Adrian Gonzalez. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what else they do, if they do anything. There's still a team that's going to struggle. It's not going to be great, but... Hosmer is going to be in that ballpark. He's going to hit a lot of home runs, uh, especially the other direction out to left field. He's going to be a very talented uh, addition for them. The question is, is how much are they going to actually do anything uh, here in 2018? So we'll see about that, but it's really great to see San Diego go and make that kind of splash, make that kind of move to be able to get such a quality player in Eric Hosmer, especially at the plate, it makes their lineup that much more interesting, that much more dangerous, and it really kind of makes that NL West uh, battle a little bit exciting too. Because not only do you have obviously the Dodgers and the Rockies and the Giants, but you know the with the Diamondbacks losing JD Martinez, we'll touch on him in a little bit here. But it, it's it's impressive to see other teams making moves like this, and uh, a little surprising to see who it was being the Padres. But I absolutely love that move. I think it's great for them. Um, you know, they're going to be a fun team to watch with Myers and Hosmer probably batting uh, third and fourth in that lineup. But they still have a lot of work to do. They're still very much a work in progress there uh, in San Diego. For now, though, uh, big move by them to go ahead and grab uh, arguably the best free agent available there uh, for this squad. So uh, good to see that for, for them. Uh, exciting, fun for the, for the Padres. Uh, bigger news though is the JD Martinez signing. It was, as we've mentioned a couple of times, the worst kept secret in baseball that he was going to be a, uh, Boston Red Sox outfielder. The deal finally coming through five years, $110 million. That's a really low, uh, threshold, a really low, uh, pay grade there for Martinez. We were expecting him to fetch Hosmer numbers, uh, there, but it is very front loaded. The first two years have combined $50 million. He's got an option after the second and the third year as well uh, for JD Martinez. But you're looking at a player who has just burst onto the scene something special over the last couple of years. Um, when you look at OPS, uh, which is just purely offensive production uh, among outfielders over the last four years, we're talking 2014, 15, 16, and 17. J.D. Martinez ranks third behind Mike Trout and John Carlos Stanton. He's ahead of Bryce Harper when it comes to offensive production. And for the Red Sox to go out and get him, you expected them to do that. But it's interesting to see him finally uh, make this play. And, and, and it's kind of interesting. I've talked about this a couple of times. As a kid who grew up as a Red Sox fan, I think it's great to get him. He'll be tremendous in that ballpark. He'll hit a lot of home runs. Uh, he had 29 
uh, with Arizona last year, splitting time between them and the Tigers. Um, 45 total home runs. Uh, he had a little over 100 RBI as well. Batted over 300 last year. He's the first player since Albert Pujols in 2009 to bat 300 and slug 650 in a year. And he's only 29. He's going to turn 30 uh, coming up this year in 2018. But in that ballpark, he's going to hit a lot of home runs. He is going to be really exciting to watch. The question that I have now is where do you put him in this Red Sox lineup? Because when you talk about designated hitter, you've got Hanley Ramirez. Uh, you've got Mitch Moreland. Those two will split time between DH and first base. You've got uh, a guy in the outfield. You've got three guys in the outfield, all young, who are tremendous. Three of the best young outfielders, best young players in the game. And Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr., and Andrew Benintendi. Benintendi plays left field better than anybody for that for that squad, especially at Fenway Park. Mookie Betts is an MVP candidate every year. And Jackie Bradley is one of the best arms in center field. So it's going to be really interesting to see where Martinez fits into this uh, system and into this lineup. But it's uh, really interesting to note that they may start trading some guys here it, because of this uh, acquisition now of J.D. Martinez. When you look at who they have and what they still have under contract, I mean, you're paying Hanley Ramirez $23 million this year uh, in his final season. Um, he'll have an option for... 2019 if he decides to come back. Mitch Moreland, you just went and signed to a two-year deal at $6.5 million, so maybe he's the guy who loses at-bats to J.D. Martinez, but at least at the DH spot. In the outfield, Mookie Betts is getting paid $10.5 million. Jackie Bradley, $6 million. Andrew Benintendi is still under his first contract pre-arbitration, so he's not really at... He might be at risk in terms of losing that um, those swings, but I think what it really does for anything else for the Red Sox is it shows the Yankees that they're not going away. They're not going to give up just because the Yankees went out and got John Carlos Stanton, just because um, they made such a great play at the World Series last year. Uh, this is just another war, uh, uh, an arms race in in the American League East between Brian Cashman and Dave Dombrowski. So um, we knew it was going to happen. It's not a surprise that it finally happened. Uh, I'm a little surprised to see exactly what happened in terms of the numbers of the contract. Only five years. Thought it would have been closer to seven. The the money is very low, 110, close to, expecting maybe closer to 150. But again, very front-loaded, $50 million over the first two years and an option after that second year. So we'll see there. And, and the biggest question is, is who loses out on those uh you know, on those at-bats when you're trying to get J.D. Martinez in there. Because, again, he's the third best outfielder in terms of offensive production uh, over the last four years, and that's hard to ignore. So um, not surprised at all to see the Red Sox there, but it'll be interesting to see how Alex Cora in his first year, similar to Aaron Boone, first-year manager, how he works that lineup in to get all these guys who are under contract, who are being paid a lot of money, uh, and maybe, who knows, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if Jackie Bradley Jr. is the odd man out and he gets traded um, by the deadline here this year for the Red Sox and you see Mookie Betts slide over there into center field and you put Martinez in right. Wouldn't surprise me at all either, depending on Hanley Ramirez's health, if if he maybe gets unloaded uh, to make room for Martinez at DH. But we'll see what happens. Um, it, we mentioned the Yankees as well. They made a move. Uh, they're still not done yet, which is interesting. They go ahead... Uh, and uh, work a three-team deal with the Diamondbacks and the Rays. Steven Souza being unloaded. He's going to Arizona uh, to probably replace uh, J.D. Martinez there in right field. Souza has been growing tremendously in terms of his offensive ability over the last couple of years, so the Diamondbacks doing something uh, to replace Martinez, who they knew was going to be gone. And the Yankees get Brandon Drury, a player who will most likely fill in there at third base for them. He can play third. He can play second. He can play in the outfield as well. Um, over the last couple of years, a young kid, only 24 last year with the Diamondbacks, um, only played in uh, played in 135 games majority of the year, but hit 267. 2016, he hit 282. So it'll be interesting to see how he feels, fills into that fold, but it's a little bit, guy with a little bit more experience uh, at third base than Andahar for the Yankees or Torres. So they made some moves there to, to kind of help that position, which is going to be key for them 
uh, here as well. And then, of course, the Rays continuing their fire sale, getting rid of uh, Odorizzi on a trade to send him to the Twins. And then, of course, as we mentioned, Steven Souza. So still a lot to talk about with Major League Baseball. Still a lot of things going on as well. Uh, We heard about the pace of play initiatives coming out over the last couple of years, uh, a couple of days. And I'll tell you what, the interesting part about this is how much the pace of play will actually affect what we see on the field. Because when you look at it, um, six mound visits per game, I like the idea simply because it speeds up that process. I mean, we saw how many times during the playoffs last year where there were multiple mound visits in the same at-bat. My question really becomes, though, if it means, for instance, uh, a catcher going out to talk. I mean, yes, the the catcher can request the umpire an opportunity to go out uh, to talk to his uh, his pitcher if they get crossed up. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens uh, when it comes time for those really big moments. It's going to affect the way these things happen and big games. And it'll be interesting to see. My bigger question is how do you punish a team if they go over their six? Like if they if they go to a seventh mound visit, do, is it an automatic out the next time they bat? Is it, you know, you got to take that pitcher out automatically? How do you actually enforce this is going to be the biggest question for me. Uh, what I do like is the inning breaks changes two minutes now for local broadcast, 225 for a national game. It goes all the way up to three minutes, though, for a playoff game uh, in the postseason. And then the inning breaks will begin on the last out, immediately the last out, not when everybody clears the field as when it used to be uh, over the last uh, couple of years. The other part is that they're talking about the pitch clock. It won't be instituted this year. They're going to give players a chance to get it underneath a certain time frame uh, before next year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, over the course of this season and see how it actually affects the pace of play. Um, Video replay, they're going to add some more slow motion camera angles to try to speed things up, but who knows what that means and who knows if it actually helps. Uh, there was one rule uh, that I don't know if you guys saw it. Rich Eisen had mentioned it. Uh, it was uh, sent to us on our Facebook page uh, to check it out. Rich Eisen uh, on his show on Wednesday said that a MLB executive told him there were whispers of changing the ninth inning and how you play it with the trailing team getting to pinch hit whoever they want. So, for instance, let's say it's the Red Sox and the Yankees in the ALCS and the Yankees are trailing going into the bottom of the ninth inning and John Carlos Stanton just struck out or whatever to end the eighth inning. If Aaron, if this change were to go into effect, Aaron Boone could effectively say, you know what, I don't want uh, you know, Torres to lead off in the bottom of the ninth inning or to bat second. I want Judge and Stanton back up again, even though they just were the last two outs of the, of the previous inning. It's only whispers. It probably won't happen. I think it's one of the dumbest things possible. You're, pay, you're, you're penalizing the leading team just for having the lead, I understand you want to make things more competitive, but that to me is where the mound visits. That's to me is where the limiting amount of pitching changes can come into play. You don't need to start giving guys a second chance to tie the game just because they're trailing in the ninth inning. I mean, that's it's how you play the game in general. It makes pinch hitters. I mean, you got Jeff Kent made a career out of being a clutch pinch hitter. Um, you need to have guys like that on your team. I mean, look, a couple of years ago, we had a pinch hit grand slam in, in game or a pinch hit home run in Game Seven of the World Series that helped the Indians almost win the World Series. So you need those guys; they're an integral part of the team. I like the mound visit change and rules. I really do not like even the faintest idea of changing the ninth inning. Now, who knows if that's actually true? Who knows if it's actually going to happen? I don't think it will, but. It's just one of those things that kind of blows my mind that you could even talk about. And we talk about the NFL becoming too sensitive and too soft. This, to me, is incredibly soft. I understand that uh, baseball is unlike any other sport where the best player doesn't have a chance to win the game in, in the clutch. But you know what? Matt Ryan didn't have a chance to win the Super Bowl after Tom Brady scored in overtime. The NFL has that rule where if you score a touchdown on the first drive, you don't get a second chance. So... It's not just that. I mean, or if LeBron James isn't playing in the final two minutes. Well, if LeBron fouls out, no, he's not playing in the final two minutes. So every 
sport has it in their effect, in their rules, that could potentially keep the best player from actually having an impact late in the game. Baseball has had that for its entire existence. You don't need to change it just because you want a more competitive game. Limit the amount of mound visits, limit the amount of pitching changes, and force these pitchers to be better, force these hitters to be better, and it'll make a more competitive game. It's that simple. Uh, We'll talk a little bit with your guys' questions coming up, but I do want to make note of this real quick because two huge things happened uh, on Wednesday uh, and early Thursday morning in Pyeongchang in South Korea in the Olympics. First and foremost, the men's curling team uh, defeating Canada in the semifinals. They will play in the finals, their first ever finals appearance in the Olympics. Uh, That's going to be in Korea at least Saturday afternoon, early early Saturday morning here in the United States, or or late Saturday, uh, Friday night, excuse me, depending on where you are in the country. Uh, But great for them. They've only had one medal ever in Olympic history. It was bronze in 2006. They're guaranteed at least a silver, so... Uh, congrats to them. Uh, great move there. And then a big congratulations to the U.S. women's hockey team last night, winning in a shootout over Canada, 3-2 to claim gold. Their first Olympic gold medal since 1998. Canada had won the last four Olympic gold medals. The interesting part about this, this is strange. There have been 18 world championships. There have been six now Olympic championships in women's hockey. The U.S. and Canada have combined to win Every single one of those. But I watched a a, a good chunk of yesterday's game, the gold medal game. It took the U.S. about a minute, about I should say about 10 minutes to really get comfortable in that first period. You could tell 100% that there was some some scary, some jitters there. But, I mean, you looked at the defense that they played. It was tremendous. Uh, Matty Rooney, at 20 years old, was absolutely brilliant in goal. And then Jocelyn Lamaru Davidson, that deke on the shootout goal was absolutely filthy. It was impressive. It was great to see. Uh, big ups to, to those girls for doing what they did and, and, and being able to come back from the heartbreak of four years ago where they had a 2 nothing lead with four minutes to go over Canada and they lose in overtime. Uh, they trailed 2-1 to one here late in the game, found the equalizer, forced overtime, went to a shootout. And uh, just absolutely tremendous. I mean, Monique Lamoureux scores the game-tying game to send it into overtime. Her twin sister scores uh, the shootout goal that gives them the lead. And then Maddie Rooney with a a great shootout to stop uh, Canada and give the U.S. their first gold in 20 years. So good on them uh, redeeming the U.S. men's team for for being knocked out uh, in the quarterfinals. So great job by them. Great job by the men's curling team as well. Still a lot more to talk about with the Olympics, and we'll, we'll recap all of it as the closing ceremonies come up this weekend. But uh, And still plenty to talk about here on the show, your questions, and then my biggest pet peeve with the NCAA denying Louisville's appeal is all coming up on Press Row. Listen to every episode and get the latest show sent right to you. Subscribe to Press Row on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com, and Stitcher.com. Or visit us online at www.thephmedia.com. This is Press Row with Christian Heimel, a public house media podcast. Wrap things up here on Press Row. Final segment here this week. Thank you so much for being a part of this program. Once again, broadcasting as part of the Public House Media Network. You guys can subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends and family. Help continue to make us one of the fastest growing sports podcasts in North America. You can do that by visiting Apple, iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, or of course, the phmedia.com. You can always get involved with the show as well on social media. You can find us Twitter and Instagram at Press Row PHM. Check us out on Facebook, Press Row Podcast dash Public House Media. Email the show, Press Row PHM at gmail.com. And of course, you can uh, find me on Twitter as well at Chris Heimel, H E I M A L L. Get to the fun part of the show where we answer your guys' questions that you have submitted to us throughout the week. Uh, first one here comes from Derek on uh, Instagram asking about. 
Baker Mayfield and the comparisons to Johnny Manziel and if they are fair or not. Listen, I've, I've talked about this multiple times. I love Baker Mayfield. I think he's a tremendous quarterback. Um, I think his play on the field and his talent far outweighs any issues you may have with him as a uh, as a person because that competitive nature, that competitive fire that he has uh, is is something that you want in a lot of, especially in your quarterback, in your leader, in your field general, supposedly. Why wouldn't you want that? I understand some of the antics, planting the flag at OSU, the crotch grab at Kansas. Those are things that you don't particularly like, but at the same time, if you can channel that in a different manner, it makes him that much better. His talent, his play on the field is so much more important. And there are teams out there that would love to have him. The Jets, I'm sure, would love to have a, a player of Baker Mayfield's caliber who can run the way he does, who can throw the way he does, scramble, throw on the move like he does. Um, you know, Teams like uh, Denver, even, who knows, maybe even Arizona, uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but uh, his draft stock is rising as it should be, in my opinion. I do think he's a first-round draft pick. Uh, I don't know if he's better than than Josh Allen or uh, any of these other guys. You know, Sam Darnold um, and and the rest, Josh uh, Rosen. But he he's so talented, and you that fire that he has, that aggressiveness, that that desire to just win, is something that is so important in this game at that position. Why wouldn't you want to have that as part of your team, as part of your locker room. So uh, a team is going to take a chance on him. Uh, they may take him late in the round. I wouldn't be surprised at all if a team like you know, New Orleans uh, takes him late in the first round and grooms him to become the heir apparent to Drew Brees. Uh, that wouldn't shock me at all, and I think that'd be a great fit for him as well. Um, but the, the comparisons to Johnny Manziel are so completely unfair to him because when we think of Johnny now, we think of him as the, with the off-the-field issues. We don't think of the talented player, the kid who won the Heisman. We don't think of that anymore. We think about the issues that we had that he had off the field. So it's unfair to compare him uh, to Johnny just because of that. Um, from a play style, a little bit, yeah, they, they are similar in that aspect. But I think Baker has a little bit stronger head, uh, a little bit better support system around him. And uh, he's got he's got a bright future ahead of him. So I'm looking forward to whichever team signs him and, and turns him into possibly one of the more exciting uh, players to watch in the NFL here coming up with this draft in April. Uh, all right, let's see here. Uh, Lewis in on Facebook is asking about Tiger Woods and his struggles. What's it going to take to get Tiger back to being Tiger? Um, listen, I don't think Tiger's ever going to get back there. Uh, he's even said it himself. It's going to take some time. Um, you know, not very uh, pleased with his performance this past weekend at the Genesis, missing the cut, but uh, staying optimistic, his swing looks a little bit better. The biggest thing for him is starting to see results because as we've all known with Tiger, similar to Tom Brady, it's about mentality. You know, when, when Tiger is playing the way that he used to, he's the scariest guy on the course. So this weekend at the Honda Classic, which gets underway today, if he's able to put some things together and feel confident in himself, it's going to make him that much better of a golfer. Golf is one of those games that can just absolutely break you if you've ever played it um, and played it at a high level because as soon as you start doing one thing wrong, you start second-guessing everything, and it makes your ability to play that much more difficult um, when it comes to actually performing. And you know, for Tiger, um, he really struggled with his... Uh, his mid-game, his irons shots over the past weekend. So we'll see if that changes. His putting has gotten a little bit better, but he's still, you know, we're still six weeks away from the Masters, and that's all that really matters for Tiger Woods is, is to try to get back to a good enough spot where he can play well enough at Augusta here in a couple of weeks. Uh, he was named a vice captain for the Ryder Cup, so that's got to be, you know, a little bit beneficial for him. He's going to play in that tournament again um, and being thought of that way. By, by the team captain, Jim Furyk, has is, is got to feel good for him. So, But we'll see how he does with the Honda this week. Um, it, it's not going to happen overnight, so we just need to be patient when it comes to if Tiger will ever be Tiger again. Um, let's see here. Uh, Joseph uh, on Twitter about the NHL. Are you still impressed with what Las Vegas is doing, and can the Nashville Predators catch them? Uh, look, the Preds in the West, there are a one point. It's, it's it's just a couple of points behind. You know, Vegas has played incredibly well this year. Obviously, 
um, you know, the, the expansion franchise best record ever by an expansion franchise. But at the same time, um, you know, we got to remember that as we've heard from, uh, Kevin Allen of USA Today a while back, he, uh, mentioned to us that these expansion rules were changed to benefit Vegas. They wanted Vegas playing better. They're still obviously one of the better teams in the league right now. David Perron has been tremendous, uh, you know, 51 points through 50 games, and he's going to break his career high in points. Uh, but Nashville is a team that is really kind of uh, turning things around a little bit. They're they're making things interesting. Uh, what's going to happen for them uh, at the trade deadline here in a little bit? Who knows? Uh, they seem to be right there in the sweepstakes for Rick Nash, uh, which would absolutely tremendously make them a much better team. Uh, they're trying to get Mike Fisher to be back in possibly March so in a couple of weeks. But Nashville, definitely the defending Western Conference champions. They probably have the best chance of anybody to catch them. Don't sleep on Winnipeg. I love what the Jets have done this year. Uh, so it'll be fun to watch there out West uh, in the world of the NHL. Um, last thing I want to talk to you guys, and again, we thank you guys so much for, for being a part of the show. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Press Row PHM, Facebook, Press Row Podcast dash Public House Media, or you can email the show, PressRowPHM at gmail.com. I want to go back because we didn't really touch on it much in the world of college basketball, but the whole Louisville issue. Um, here's my problem. The appeal that was denied, and now they have to vacate the 2013 National Championship and all these wins. This does nothing. Uh, you know, and, and this stems from the escort who you know, said she was paid $10,000 to perform at parties or recruiting parties to try to get some of these players there. Listen, I, I watched Louisville play in the NCAA tournament that year. Uh, I broadcast for a team that they lost to in that NCAA tournament, and that team was talented. Whether they, how they got those players doesn't matter. Uh, be, I mean, it does, but at the same time, it doesn't affect, you can't take that away. You can't take that national title, say they, they're no longer, there's just not a champion in 2013. No, we know they won that game. They were a better team. Um, but to, to take away wins and to vacate wins for this, for a escort being paid 10 grand to perform at parties uh, over a course of a couple of years for recruiting for recruits to vacate those wins to further demonize and to further damn the Louisville program when North Carolina the NCAA turned a eye to North Carolina 20 years of academic fraud just to keep their players eligible to win championships and the NCAA did nothing that it really doesn't under I, it makes no sense. The NCAA is a false idol. It, it makes it's a paper uh, governing body. It literally does nothing. And the NCAA hurt itself more than anything possible by denying Louisville's appeal and telling them they have to vacate the 2013 title just because there was someone there was because they paid for a stripper to get recruits. UNC spent 20 years forging transcripts, forging grades, making up fake classes so that their star players could still stay on the team. 20 years, and that's not just the program, that's institutional at North Carolina. This isn't UNC men's basketball, it's the University of North Carolina, and the NCAA did absolutely nothing. It makes no sense in my mind as to why the NCAA can say academic fraud for 20 years is okay, but paying uh, an escort to strip for recruits to try to get them to come to Louisville for a period of three years, that is wrong. Especially considering everything that's going on with the recruiting scandal, this is the problem. When it comes down to how do we get these kids to come to our school, it becomes an issue. But once they're there, what does it matter? We can make academic fraud, we can let them you know, get paid for, for autographs, whatever it is. It's embarrassing to, to see that from the NCAA. And Mark Emmert, I'm, I'm done with him because... Apparently, he knew about what was going on at Michigan State with Larry Nasser. He turns a blind eye to you to academic fraud at North Carolina. He's turned a blind eye, as has everybody in college sports and college basketball, to improper pay of student-athletes. Mark Emmert needs to be gone. The NCAA needs to be dissolved. And an actual governing body needs to take over. It's embarrassing. It's wrong. And I don't get it. I don't understand why there isn't a bigger uproar at the fact that the NCAA will allow 20 years of academic fraud to happen at one of the premier 
institutions of collegiate basketball, not just over the last 10 years like Louisville has been, but in history. They'll allow it to happen. Yet, for here at Louisville, because it's Rick Pitino and because of all these other issues that have happened, they're going to deny the appeal. It's like they're taking what happened at the start of the season and using it against Louisville for what happened three, four, five, six, seven years ago. It's wrong. It makes no sense. And the NCAA, Mark Emmert, should be embarrassed by themselves and by their actions. I want to thank you guys so much for being a part of the show. It's been a lot of fun. We want to thank Michael Scotto of The Athletic for joining us here this week. As always, subscribe, rate, review, share us with your friends and family. Uh, Spreaker.com, iHeartRadio, Stitcher.com, of course, Google Play, and Apple iTunes as well. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PressRowPHM. Find us on Facebook, PressRowPodcast-PublicHouseMedia. Or always email the show, PressRowPHM at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Heimel, H-E-I-M-A-L-L. Thank you guys once again so much for listening, for the support. We appreciate it. And as always, I'm Christian Heimel. Until next week, I'll see you on Press Row.